Father, we thank you that we have had a day today of singing and of worship and of teaching, and we pray that these things would serve us well, that we would return to the cross, that we would live lives of love, that we would know that our Savior is returning for us and live through him, by him, and before him. We pray that you would open your word this evening uh, through the speaker. We thank you that your word is rich and deep. Help us to understand it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm speaking this evening on um, what constitutes about 20% of the book of Exodus, and therefore, it must be important. The fact that God judges and that God shows us in the Old Testament wrath gives many Christians discomfort. Um, former Prime Minister John Diefenbaker had parents who were born-again Christians, grew up in Saskatchewan, and um, I don't think John Diefenbaker was a believer. He was brought up very, very much with a Christian ethic, and he described his parents as very much New Testament people. And that is, I think, sometimes the way that Christians are. We, we tend to, um, as perhaps uh, might be expected, focus on um, salvation and the love of Christ and the life of Christ. But what is the redemption in Christ and from Christ saving us from? It is good for us to remember and to be mindful uh, that God does judge and that when God judges, because he is a God of unlimited power, that his judgments are and can be very severe. That is a reality. That is a reality of the power of God. And that is a reality of God judging sin, one of them being oppression. We read in chapter 1 of Exodus that Joseph had 70 descendants, and that entire generation passed away. The, the Pharaoh passed away, and it was quite some time, therefore, before um, the enslavement that we read about and the plagues that we read about, starting in about chapter 4, begin. That then means, however, that there was a testimony from the Jews, those 70 descendants of Joseph, who knew Yahweh, who knew Jehovah, who knew God, and that the Egyptian court and culture did not take advantage of that, but descended into animism. This animism had far-reaching influences so that there are parallels between the Greek system of uh, gods and mythology and the Egyptian system. What are some of the uh, gods with a small g within the Egyptian pantheon? We have Isis, natural world, and of funerals, a god with a cow headdress, Ra, sun god creator of life in their system, with a cobra around the sun on his head. Horus looked like a falcon, king of the sky, set out of chaos and storms and of the desert, who had a head like a jackal. Anubis, head like a dog, god of corpses and mummification and of the soil of the Nile. 
which also, of course, um, fertilized the land. And Osiris, the god of resurrection, who had green skin in the sense of plant life. So within this pantheon, we see frequent reference to animals. And this persisted for centuries, even millennia. We come to chapter 4 of Exodus, and there is a diagram that I'm going to use over and over again pertaining to the judgments of God against the Egyptians who oppressed the Jews and made slaves out of them. There are ten plagues. They are terrible plagues, and I found them to be quite interesting, and I hope to be able to elaborate upon them this evening. What is the context? It would be 1500-1450 BC. That is a, an earlier uh, date within the BC. And uh, there is some discussion as to whether there it might have been a different pharaoh, but most uh, archaeologists, I guess, and scholars would agree that it's, uh, this makes more sense within the biblical chronology, a date of about 1450. And we would be frequently in our narrative here, which is a historical account in the palace because Moses is confronting Pharaoh with Aaron as his mouthpiece. Thutmose the third or Amenhotep the second would have been the Pharaoh. And Ma Moses has reappeared after an absence of 40 years. And he has previously served um, as a prince under a different Pharaoh. It's been 400 years that uh, since uh, Prime Minister Joseph uh, served a previous pharaoh and his 11 brothers enjoyed a privilege a, a long time. The circumstances are that you have about 2 million Jews, upwards to 2 million Jews, under forced labor with nowhere to worship God. And it seems that when Moses comes to them and talks to them, they are receptive at this point in time, and they are living in repression. They are not building the, 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 the pyramids. They are probably building grain storage buildings. Previously, I had showed you a diagram on a Sunday morning in which I uh, talk about the point at which Moses is going to state God's demand to let my people go. But you can read that before that, next slide, he presents God's plan to the elders of Israel, and it says something very interesting. It says they believed. So what we have is the children of Israel, the leaders of the children of Israel, actually in this account, beginning from a position of faith. We also have the expression of hatred, a culture of hatred, Egyptian hatred, Pharaoh said, when ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. For if it be a daughter, then, ye shall then she shall live. And Pharaoh charged all his, his people, saying, every son that is born, ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save. A culture of oppression and hatred. We shouldn't, I think, be surprised that God is going to judge Egypt for this oppression. In the, the book of Nahum in the Minor Prophets is a 
Statement of Judgment Against Nineveh, two books after Jonah. The book of Obadiah and the Minor Prophets is a book of the judgment against the nation of Edom, which is in the northwest part of Saudi Arabia. You have um, the entire book of Jeremiah, which is actually a judgment against Israel itself. Isn't it interesting that one of the reasons for that is oppression? When you read uh, Micah and Je Jeremiah, uh, you, you read that the Israelites have had fallen into an, uh, uh, a society which did not portray the love and justice of God. It portrayed oppression. So the very thing that they had been redeemed of, they had become. And in 586 BC, they were sent off to Babylon, which is interesting. At the end of days, Gog and Magog are judged at Armageddon. Some people believe that this is Iran and Russia. God does judge nations. We know that he is the ultimate judge. People feel that, um, you know, the idea of God uh, judging makes them very uncomfortable. But with knowledge comes accountability. That's just a fact. Another aspect is that God owns everything because he made everything. God has the right, the inherent right, to be a judge, and we can trust him to make righteous judgments. Genesis 18.25, you may recall the reply, the statement by Abraham, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? A hypothetical question. Of course he will in that, in that question. Micah 6.8 he has showed thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. The revelation of God to all men is toward righteous behavior, and he will judge them accordingly, and they need redemption. We know this, but we also know that God will judge and that God will judge righteously. God notices, one of the lessons for us, I think we, in, we live, though we live in the age of grace, there is a, an increasing measure, I believe, of oppression against Christians. I think it's going to increase. And we may take comfort in the fact that God sees it. God knows it. Here you have in Exodus 2, and it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried. And their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. God noticed the oppression of his people. Here's a very interesting thing when it comes to the question of accountability. Exodus 4. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, instructions from God to Moses and Aaron, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. There is full intent and full warning here as we move into these judgments from Exodus 4, ending in the judgment against the firstborn in Exodus 12. And I had mentioned that the response of the heart of the rec receivers of Moses' um, message, Moses and Aaron, was faith. 
So it says in Exodus 4, And Moses and Aaron went out and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken unto Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked upon their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. So we have a couple of interesting and important facts that we are embarking on a series of judgments, but there is full intent, there is full warning, and on the part of the people of God, there is faith. The first one is changing the waters into blood. And it shall come to pass, if they will not believe also these two signs, neither hearken unto thy voice, that thou shalt take the water of the river and pour it upon the dry land, and the water which thou takest out of the river shall become blood upon the dry land. So there's a long passage there, and we see, I have underlined for you, that it happens, the waters are smitten in the sight of Pharaoh. They are smitten in the sight of Pharaoh. And you have not only the turning of the color, but the stinking. Now, um, what might that induce in people? Well, if you, you know that if you have no water, you will not be able to survive a ma matter of more than a few days. So if there is this uh, stinking red liquid, even in the vessels, as well as in the river, um, I would, if I was a, a, an Egyptian, I would be filled with fear and uncertainty. How many days do I have to live if there is nothing to drink? I may have to start traveling. I may have to eat fruit. I may have to do um, things to try to find a way of survive, way to survive. So we can imagine that from the very first plague, there would be uh, a fear and uncertainty that would come into that people and that nation. And they're, uh, I believe they are a proud and powerful nation in that time, and there's nothing they can do about it. They have a sense of powerlessness the waters of the Nile come from Ethiopia and the Sudan. Uh, there is nothing they can do about this phenomenon. We, we know that some of the things in the Old Testament, such as noises from mountains, can actually be caused by natural phenomena. For example, when, they, when it says that it sounded like trumpets from the mountain, uh, Mount Sinai, where the law came, we know that volcanic vents have been scientifically documented to make screaming-like noises, uh, trumpet-like noises. So um, in that case, one might say, well, then it isn't a miracle. Well, as one science Christian uh, person who is a scientist uh, came over from England and spoke at Dalhousie said, it is still a miracle from the point of view of its perfect timing. And that is also to say that God can, tr can control the exact moment of these events carrying that over into this red water, are there instances of microbiological phenomenon turning water red? Yes, there are. So it could be some kind of a protozoan or amoeba that does cause a reddishness to the water. And if it dies, it then causes a smell. So this um, has happened, and it is nonetheless fe uh, causing fear and uncertainty within these people. Uh, the person who knows about the causality of this event is the leader of the nation because it happened in front of his eyes in particular. 
So he bears a particular responsibility in what is happening. He knows the causality of these things. What is the next thing that comes? The frogs. Well, that is uh, quite a passage there. I've merely included it for completeness. You can have this PowerPoint presentation with all the scriptures built into it. And I've, I've highlighted two words there, bedchamber and kneading trough. In the natural created order, we have a sense of what is appropriate to touch, what is appropriate to allow to come in contact with our skin and our tongue and our mouth, and what is not. That is actually part of the created order. If you have a frog and it jumps onto a slice of bread that you were going to eat, their natural instinct is, well, I'm not eating that. If a frog jumped into your bed, would you simply get rid of the frog and then go and lie down in the bed? It's inherently disgusting. God has made a natural order to things and given us common sense that we would not want things that are certain things, many things, to be in contact with things that touch our skin or go into our mouths. This is actually part of the created order. What would it do if you had that happen so that a frog could be touching you when you're sleeping? You probably would have trouble falling asleep. If your food could have been touched by a frog or you saw it touched by a frog, you wouldn't eat it. The uncleanness of it is common sense. It is repulsive. The previous plague no doubt engendered fear and uncertainty. This plague engenders a feeling of repulsiveness. And the magicians of Pharaoh can do it. This means that they may be thinking that one of our gods is angry with us. Don't worry. We deal with our gods. This has nothing to do with the Hebrew god. Maybe this is one of our animistic gods, and this is things, things will get better. It reminds me of the Lord Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24 about false Christs who will tell you that they can do a sign or a wonder, and therefore don't worry, everything's under control. And then you have the tribulation. So... Um, it, is, it must have been a very um, horrible time to be alive, a horrible time to have to endure such uh, repulsive sufferings. And yet, it's only beginning. We come to, depends on the translation, gnats or lice. And um, I suppose you might close the doors and put towels under the doors and try to keep the frogs out. But good luck keeping the gnats and the lice out. Uh, you, if you're a Nova Scotian, I, I moved here in 1993. A couple of years later, I learned a word about an insect. It is, in fact, a species of gnat, species of fly. We call them noceums. So I learned about this creature, and you can hardly see it. I think it's flying teeth. You, 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 you look down, and you feel this awful bite, and you go... I need some light to see that. I, oh, yeah, I guess there is something there. So these are very small flies that breed in the sand. Um, Egypt has no shortage of sand. And um, 
It has no shortage of dust, therefore it has no shortage of lice or gnats. These are biting insects that are very small. This means that this plague has this sense of pervasiveness everywhere. You might keep the frogs out, but you're not keeping the gnats out. There's nowhere to hide. This is an extreme nuisance. I might be breathing them in. They're biting me. They might be flying around me. And then in 819, we read that the magicians say, we cannot do this. this we cannot replicate this. Therefore, there is the got to be another explanation. They say, this is the finger of God in verse 19. Wow. The other side saying, this is the finger of God. Not gods, not Anubis the god. This is the finger of God. This is what the magicians are saying to Pharaoh about this pervasive plague. It then moves on to flies. These are also external to my body, but what do flies do when they see food? They lay eggs in it, and, it and out come maggots. This is going to be very disgusting. So now you have a, a repulsiveness that is pervasive. It's almost like the combination of the previous two. Uh, certainly if a fly lands on something, you're not going to uh, suddenly pop it in your mouth. Um, flies that are visible um, are more, more uh, bothersome perhaps, uh, especially if they come in swarms. If you see a swarm of flies, you try to dodge it, but if there's swarms of flies everywhere, good luck with that. It's a pervasive, repulsive plague that has been brought upon the Egyptians. What is next? That is actually a passage pertaining to the flies. The fifth plague is that their animals <coughs> get sick and most of them die. That's more, I think, fear and uncertainty <coughs> because where is your long-term <coughs> food supply going to come from? There's going to be fear and uncertainty if there are no breeding animals to perpetuate the, the, the food supply and to act as beasts of burden. This is starting to undermine the economy of Egypt. We then find out that um, the hail kills cattle, even though this disease killed the cattle. So it raises the question, what did Pharaoh do? Did he steal some from the Israelites? Did he import them from the edge of the influenced uh, area? Uh, what exactly did he do? Did the, all the cattle in this passage refer to all the adult cattle and that some of the young ones had been saved? Um, but nonetheless, what we have here is a, a, a deep... Uh, damage, shall we say, to the economy of the country and to its food supply, leading to more fear and uncertainty. What comes next? Previously, we've had various things that were repulsive on the outside that make that I don't want to touch things. Now we come to a plague in which I am repulsive to myself. I don't know if you've ever had a boil. I once had one boil. And 
um, in my entire life. I tell you, that was one very painful spot on my body that took some uh, weeks to disappear. I can't imagine what it would be like to be covered with weeping boils. That would be a terrible suffering. I would become repulsive to myself. And what you find, too, is that, you know, you want to pick something, uh, you've got boils all over your hand, it hurts to touch anything. So the externality and the untouchability is now actually onto me. I am repulsive and I can't pick up things because it hurts my hand when I pick things up. A terrible plague. Why could the magicians not show up? Because the boils were so bad on the magicians that they could not stand before Pharaoh. A repulsiveness that is painful and that is me, myself. Pain is very distracting. I don't know if you've ever had chronic pain. I, thankfully, have never had chronic pain. Most of us have had acute pain. That is pain that comes and goes. I can't imagine what it would be like to be in a state of continuous pain 24 hours a day. I think your mind begins to lose its ability to concentrate on anything. But you say, well, life must go on. Yeah, but I can't think about life. I can't think about anything. My pain is too distracting to me. And in those days, I can't imagine that they would have had very much that they could do about it, about this chronic pain from the boils. And again, let my people go. What comes next is now not in the category of living things, but it is hydrometeorological. It is a severe hail. And when you read the scriptures carefully, you read that it comes with thunder and rainfall. You have the destruction of property. There's a long passage there, but what it says is that you have the destruction of plants. That means at a time in, the, in, the, in some of the plants before the seeds can be produced so that you would have a, the ability to plant those next year. They've been destroyed. They've been completely destroyed. Um, you would have destruction of um, your property, perhaps your, your buildings, your uh, animal corrals and so on, your, your storage facilities. These things would be damaged. And what we read is that the animals that did not die from the diseases uh, now died. I would imagine that... Um, some of them at the edge of the hailstorms. It's known that thunder and lightning and hail actually have fairly well-defined footprints due to convective cells, as they are known, and this upper atmosphere circulation that takes place so that you get an accretion of ice, and it is, re, uh, uh, it is made buoyant again, relifted back into the upper elevations for another round of freezing to make another uh, a layer on the hail to make it heavier and bigger. Um, this actually has a footprint on the ground that is quite identifiable. So this footprint on the ground apparently would be large enough to, to, to cover the main populated areas of Egypt. And the animals that um, did not die from the disease would be killed by this. And you would also have soil erosion. If you have extreme rainfall, your agricultural basis for your society can also be put into jeopardy as if it hasn't been put into enough jeopardy already by virtue of the other things that have happened. So the um, society is, is, is breaking down, and for the first time, Sparrow says something. He says, I have sinned. 
He admits culpability in what is happening. What is next? After the damage in to goods and property caused by hail, you have a plague of locusts, which are some, you know, small swarms on a seasonal basis are seen in the Middle East and in Africa. This, you might say this is not a new thing, not a completely new thing, any more than hail is a completely new thing. But the um, severity of this cloud of locusts is that, you know, if you had uh, anything left over in terms of the ability to do agriculture, now av every last herb, every last piece of greenery has now been consumed. These are various phenomena that um, are from sort of a, a you might say, a, a, a natural world but n and things that have some inkling of experience. What about this? Darkness. Darkness. A darkness that can be felt. What a terrible judgment that would be. You would be confused. You would be unable to really act to do it to do anything if with a darkness that could be felt. I would imagine that with all the fear that has been, been generating through these various plagues, you now have a sense of powerlessness, of uncertainty, a tremendous amount of fear that just keeps building, and there's a cumulative effect. There's an unexpectedness to many things that happened before, and now you have... A, a persistent darkness, a paralyzing fear and a paralyzing darkness that um, probably caused a degree of emotional exhaustion when people have pain and suffering and confusion and chaos and loss of property, they can become emotionally exhausted. But beyond this confusion and kind of paralysis of darkness, what is now going to happen? The death of the firstborn. What a terrible thing. It was warned. The Egyptians were warned. The firstborn were going to die. And as we know, the Israelites were spared by putting the blood of a lamb on the lintel and doorposts so that the angel of death did not affect the firstborn. And by the way, the animals of the Israelis, the Jews, were not affected either. It was, it was selected in that case as well. This is also selective. And when you have, I suppose, a, a, as I have been saying, a, a great number of terrible things that cause you physical suffering and emotional exhaustion and confusion, the entire created order seems to be in chaos and disorder and you ha you're getting probably to the end of your rope. Actually, the worst is yet to come because you lose your, your firstborn child. Now, these children would have, uh, many of them would have been uh, younger than the age of accountability and we leave it to the Lord to how the Lord handles children who are who pass away before the age of accountability, including these children who died. But can you imagine within the Egyptian culture, within the Egyptian leadership, that from the, as it says in the Bible, from the least to the greatest, everybody had this terrible personal 
loss, this terrible emotional suffering. It is an inner suffering. It is not an outer suffering. Such is the wrath of God against Egypt. Isn't it interesting that all of God's realms are covered, one might say, the biological, disease, things that you cannot see, they would not have understood about microbiology, bacteria, and so on, the physical, even the soul, the sudden death of a child with no explanation. For something that's covering all the realms, it is not Anubis and Osiris and all of these different pantheon of Egyptian uh, beings. It could not be. It was the same God, the one God, and they had to come to terms with that, and they actually, it seems, never did. Just like modern society, and I believe just like some of the judgments that are going to come. All of these judgments are, in this case, connected to a confrontation, are they not? That confrontation is actually between God and Satan. It is the old confrontation, and, s and Pharaoh is a man who is doing Satan's bidding. These are all pervasive, all of these judgments. Their effects are either hard or impossible to escape. There is a broadness to this judgment. And as we see in the book of Revelation, there is a real broadness to ju God's judgment again. We had four living things, invasive and visible, three of which are from the order Insecta. These are nuisances, disgusting, unnerving, but nuisances one might be able to hide from them. Three are non-living, environmental, hydrometeorological, darkness, hail, water change, not merely nuisances. They affect the human and the, human, the, the, the society, the ability of, of our society to survive, the Egyptian society. Two living things, but microscopic, inescapable, affect ability to live, and one that is completely without precedent, that is completely inexplicable that one child in every family should be taken away. And that is, no doubt, the worst one. I'd like to make some, some observations in closing. We see in, in the book of Exodus that, it, it, as you know, or as you should know if you read your Bible, it presents a dual aspect to Pharaoh, the role of Pharaoh. It teaches us that God deliberately hardened Pharaoh's heart. It also says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Isn't that interesting? We believe that when it comes to salvation, there is the both and in this case as well. We believe in the sovereignty of God in salvation and we simultaneously believe that everyone must choose. Everyone must choose. The situation is portrayed as dual, I believe, in the scriptures because it is dual. It is a both and. God is sovereign and you must choose. You are a moral agent. Pharaoh chose. God was sovereign in judging that nation and it was part of his purpose in history to judge that nation. We saw at the beginning, as I said, that God sees it when his people suffer. That's good comfort for us when we suffer personally, 
we should remember that God knows it, that God sees it. We have personal sufferings. God, in his time, will deal with the cause of the suffering. We may not see it, or we may see it, but that is in God's timing. We await his timing. We know that we live in a wicked society. We shouldn't be surprised to, sur to suffer as Christians in a society that is inherently wicked. We await God's timing. And we know that when God does decide to intervene, that he is the God of the universe and his power of retribution is unlimited. I want to present to you a table. Did you know that most of the plagues presented to us in the book of Exodus appear again in the book of Revelation as the bowls of wrath. You have the seals going back to chapter 6, followed by trumpets, followed by bowls. Isn't it interesting that during the tribulation you are going to have exactly the kind of suffering that is described in Exodus chapter 4 through 12 it makes one think that a conversation might occur something like this in the middle of the suffering. I seem to remember that this is in the Bible, what's happening to us. And the other person says, really? So many of these things that are so unusual and so terrible actually have happened before? Yes, in the Old Testament. They happened. Well, what was the reason and what, what, what did it lead up to? The average pagan not knowing his Bible. What it led up to was the freeing of the people of God. Uh-oh. The people of God are already gone. Where is this suffering going? Where are these judgments going? In the book of Revelation, these terrible judgments will happen, and the children of God will have been already removed. No one's leaving, and all mankind will be affected. All God's realms covered again, and even the sun and the stars, all connected to a very old confrontation, and unfortunately one that the common man seems to have very little understanding of the confrontation between the creator God of the universe and the evil rebellion spawned by Satan and driven by Satan. These judgments will be extremely pervasive and impossible to escape. Final judgments, final punishment, to the point that you can read in Revelation 6 that people said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. We as believers know that we will be spared those terrible judgments. We should also, I think, keep in mind that we need to be people who bear witness to those around us who don't know that God will judge sin and that God may well judge sin in our lifetimes if the Lord returns. Have you ever thought of the judgments that could come 
on your friends, your unbelieving friends, in your lifetime, and you will be taken away. Sometimes I think it's obviously good to tell people about God's judgment against sin, to escape hell, it certainly is, to know what it is to believe in Christ and escape hell through the blood of the Lamb. But there may well be in this century a round of judgment on the earth that the earth has never seen before. We won't see it. We won't be here. But there may well be ones that we are concerned about that we rub shoulders with who may experience it. We should be people who are willing to warn others of the coming wrath. That is something that uh, God can lay on our hearts as part of our compassion for the lost. God judges sin. He judges sin ultimately, and sometimes he judges sin on the earth in palpable ways. Let us keep these things in mind as we go out into our week that um, God, at the beginning, as I have said, at the book of Exodus, there was full intent and full warning, and these judgments were brought. The gospel has been preached. The message has gone out. I trust that it continues to go out through, through you and I. And thus, we can be instruments of God in escaping God's wrath. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the testimony of your word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to realize that you do judge sin. Help us to be people with hearts of compassion and hearts of faith and also to realize that your judgments are serious, that sin is repugnant to you, and that uh, those with whom we, we rub shoulders day to day need the message of the gospel. They need to escape the judgment of hell and the judgment of wrath. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.